BHP hits record profit. I have conflicting headlines here between CNBC, which is saying it's the second biggest profit they've ever made, and the Bloomberg via mining.com article that is saying it is the biggest profit. I'm not sure it matters, and maybe they're looking at different time scales. We will take a closer look. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I welcome you back. And, you know, BHP, I was just looking at their stock. I mean, it peaked out in April at like $70, and now it's at 54 after soaring, according to CNBC. And this is where, like, I don't know if I trust everything these guys say. They're saying it soared. I mean, it's up 3.8%. I mean, is that soaring? To me, soaring is 10 to 20%, which kind of feeds into my whole little thesis that the interns are kind of running the show at a lot of these news desks over the summer here sometimes, particularly in August. Yeah, here it is. Let's just get the wording perfect. CNBC, Anglo-Australian miner BHP shares soared 3.8%. I mean, that just sounds like a good day. I wouldn't call that soaring, but we're splitting hairs here a little bit. So BHP is doing really well is the takeaway, and it is making the front page of financial news, which is also always kind of interesting. So that is happening. We got a couple of comments. Speaking of stock prices, I thought it was kind of hilarious, actually. Adrian, we're going to need some visuals, mainly the charts. Thank you. Thank you, Kwaku. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, look, like turning this into a video podcast is probably where it should go. But I mean, that's like a whole, you know, this is a pretty lean operation over here. So if you start bringing in a camera, it's nice for the charts. Like that would be great. And maybe that's where this should all go. I don't know if we're there yet though, because then it's just a bigger operation. Okay. Then like you're dealing with video files too. And and don't forget what you're gaining here. Like, I edit these audio presentations, and that's much to your benefit. And we could do it where they're just straight up video, but, you know, I'm not going to go in there and remove every um and ah in the video, and we're going to have some choppy video. So there are positives and negatives. Again, I think your instincts are correct that this should go video at some point. You know, maybe we do it when we bring in someone like Gareth Soloway. Okay, maybe you just have a video that you put out on YouTube and maybe you put the audio version on the podcast. Who knows? But uh, I appreciate the comment. Another very interesting comment on my whole China-Taiwan story being underplayed. I thought this was really interesting. Scrugold says, sounds too much like gold bug paranoia. China is posturing. I mean... Yeah, I don't know if you saw the Kissinger story. I mean, I like I I'm sympathetic actually to this view like cuz it is easy when all of a sudden there's military exercises in the Taiwan Strait for everybody to get you know, their tail up and the the hair on their back kind of raise and everybody start to get overexcited. You know, the passions that come with war and the potential for war, the so-called war drums. That being said, like My point was, like, it was just, like, it still seems pretty lax. Like, everybody's just assuming, basically, what what Scrugold is saying here was show China's posturing. But when it comes to war and adversaries, I mean, I think your best bet is actually to take what people are saying, that they actually mean what they're saying, rather than, oh, they're just, you know, the classic 
saber rattling. So, you know, as far as I understand, like, I mean, there's more Congress people went to Taiwan and then they extended them again. Like, I guess this is my point. A couple of things here on the gold bug paranoia. My point is, I still don't know what's going on in the Taiwan Strait. Like, do you know what's going on in the Taiwan Strait right now? I don't. I, I, from what I gather, military exercises are continuing. Is that a blockade? Can ships go in and out? I think they can now. What is the U.S. doing? Where is their aircraft carriers? And, and I'd just say one further point on this. I was listening to lectures by the Great Courses, now called Wondrium, on China. And they were saying, the brilliant professor, I think Professor Baum, who is like a total China expert, he was talking about the last crisis in the Taiwan Strait, or the one in 1997, I believe it was, when Newt Gingrich, I believe it was after Newt Gingrich visited. And China did kind of the same thing, these military exercises. And what the U.S. did was they sent in Clinton, sent in the aircraft carriers. And I was reading, you know, like a week or two ago that, you know, the aircraft carriers are ready. I'm just not convinced that today's China, who seems to repeat quite often this idea of the century of humiliation, is going to stand for, like, if an aircraft carrier goes in, I, I think they probably already have a contingency, and I don't think it's going to be backing off like they did in 97. So I guess... Again, not to get too off topic here, but let's not be overconfident in what the other side is thinking and doing. Oh, they're just posturing. And then where does that leave us if they're not? And I'm totally sympathetic. And let me just say, Scroogled, I appreciate the comment. I'm just happy people are listening and take it seriously enough to write a comment. So I'm quite happy and feel free to write more. But I guess I just think we should err on the side of caution here. Uh, we didn't with Ukraine. We just kept pushing. And then, like, and, and just to push it to Ukraine, I mean, everybody was shocked and surprised that Putin actually went in, that Russia actually attacked. Even geopolitical experts were shocked and surprised. I mean, they're basically telegraphing it, and nobody thought it would happen. And, and then you had Kissinger out here, finally. And you had Kissinger out there saying, you know, what, what were the exact words? He had an interview in the Wall Street Journal because he has a new book coming out, 99 years old. And yeah, I mean, basically the headline here is USA moving towards the brink with China and Russia. On Taiwan, he advised being, quote, very careful in measures that seem to change the structure of the relationship with China. And exactly. And so what did we lose here is the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. And China said that. And Kissinger, you know, interestingly said that foreign policy is, quote, very responsive to the emotion of the moment. I thought this was interesting, and I do think it relates, you know, obliquely, but it does relate particularly to the ESG narrative. Kissinger added that foreign policy is, quote, very responsive to the emotion of the moment. So I found that really interesting because I think it kind of fed into our the whole kind of view of this idealism versus pragmatism and that we've gone down a pretty idealistic route, which I think is what Kissinger is saying, very responsive to the emotion of the moment, as he says. And I think we see it in Germany, say, with nuclear power. Like, I mean, we were talking about to Jeffrey Christian about this. Uh, there's kind of an emotional side to this argument, seemingly. 
maybe that's just my mining perspective, but it seems to be a bit of an emotional argument rather than a kind of rational, pragmatic view, which says, okay, this isn't perfect, but it's pretty safe these days. And we have a major energy problem. And, you know, and there's all sorts of problems. I mean, look at France, they have nuclear energy and they're having all sorts of problems over there because their rivers are low and they use that to cool down the plant, apparently. So we have a fabulous feature content for you from the Canadian Mining Journal. They interviewed three partners from Denton's and they discuss investment protection in mining with Canadian Mining Journal editor-in-chief Tamer Elbokel. So I think this is going to be more and more important, this idea of how safe are your investments, whether you're a miner or an investor, in foreign countries? And how do you gauge that? Maybe, you know, retail, like for myself, I'm not necessarily researching that. I just say, okay, that country, give it like maybe a 50 or 60 out of 100, part of the risk reward, what's the price? And then I go for it. But if you're a pension fund, if you're a mining company like Barrick that is maybe expanding into a foreign country, well, then this content is for you because this is a good primer on investing in foreign countries and the things you need to be concerned about. So lots to look forward to there. Other than that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at northernminer and on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And maybe I should have called this the Goldbug episode, because we have an update from Bloomberg via mining.com, how the U.S. toppled the world's most powerful gold trader. So that case with the uh, with JP Morgan and the spoofing has concluded. So let's take a closer look. In December 2018, a man in his early 30s was intercepted on arrival at Fort Lauderdale Airport and taken to a room where two FBI agents sat waiting. The target was scared and already on high alert. One of his associates had recently admitted to crimes he knew he'd also committed. Christian Troon's wasn't a terrorist or a drug trafficker, but a mid-level trader of precious metals returning from his honeymoon. Crucially, he was also a long-standing employee of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., the biggest bullion bank. The FBI's airport ambush, described by Truns, was a crucial step in the pursuit by U.S. prosecutors of J.P. Morgan's precious metals desk, leading up to last week's climax, the conviction on 13 counts of the man who was once the most powerful figure in the gold market, the desk's formal global head, Michael Novak. Watched with a mixture of fascination and horror by precious metals traders around the world, the case has shone a light on how J.P. Morgan's traders, including Novak and the bank's longtime lead gold trader, Greg Smith, for years allegedly manipulated markets by placing bogus orders designed to wrong-foot other market participants, principally algorithmic traders whose high-speed activity became a major source of frustration. Novak has become one of the most senior bankers to be convicted in the U.S. since the financial crisis and faces the prospect of decades in prison, although it could be far less. Novak's lawyers contend Novak wasn't a, quote, criminal mastermind and said they will, quote, continue to vindicate his rights in court, end quote. A lawyer for Smith said during closing arguments last month that his client's orders were legitimate, 
And there are other explanations to buy and sell futures contracts at the same time on behalf of customers. It took three weeks in court for the government to persuade a jury of Novak and Smith's guilt. Jeffrey Rufo, a salesman who was tried with them, was acquitted. Now, if we scroll down, and you can read the whole thing on mining.com, if we scroll down, we have a quote from Matthew Mazur, an attorney at Deschert LLP, who defended one of the Deutsche Bank traders, who were also on trial at some point, quote, even though the jury rejected the conspiracy and RICO charges, they will consider this a win. This is probably the end of the precious metal sweep that was done, but I do think there will continue to be cases. Even after the crackdown, some market participants say spoofing still takes place. Back when commodity futures traded in the pits, brokers had to trade face-to-face. Hiding behind a screen makes it much easier to place and pull orders at will. Quote, we still see spoofing on a regular basis, end quote, said Eric Zuccarelli, an independent commodities trader who began working on the floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange in 1986. Quote, but back then, if a person spoofed, everybody would come over and punch you in the face, and the floor committee would come over and fine you for being an asshole. And that is a direct quote, ladies and gentlemen, moving on to our next story. BHP hits profit record and sees demand healing in China. Bloomberg News via Mining.com, BHP Group, the world's biggest miner, posted its highest ever full-year profit on record commodity prices and will push ahead with growth options on a stronger demand outlook in China. The producer will study plans to expand its top-earning iron ore unit to 330 million tons of production a year and is continuing to assess options to lift volumes in copper and nickel, Melbourne-based BHP said Tuesday in a statement. A giant new potash mine in Canada remains on track to begin out in 2026. It's probably the Janssen potash mine. Chief Executive Officer Mike Henry said China's emergence from COVID-19 lockdowns would provide a, quote, tailwind, end quote, to the global economy in a counterpoint to jittery sentiment on China following a swath of surprisingly weak data. And, you know, this brings us back to China. Like, I'm not convinced economics is their top priority in the same way that it might be in the West. And Mike Henry continues, quote, we think that over the next six to 12 months, China, if anything, is going to provide some stability to global growth and will help offset some of the slowing that we see elsewhere, end quote. China typically accounts for more than 60% of BHP's revenue. Interesting. Rival miners have cautioned over a weaker outlook and Rio Tinto Group last month reported a decline in first half profits and halved its dividend. Interesting. So we saw these massive dividends. Gold giant Newmont Mining and copper producer First Quantum Minerals have also warned investors in recent weeks on the impact of inflationary pressures. So BHP is pulling ahead of the pack there a little bit from the sounds of it. And we have an update on Rio Tinto and the Oyu Tolgoe project. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Turquoise Hill rejects Rio Tinto's $2.7 billion U.S. takeover offer. So this is Kind of an interesting little shell game here. Turquoise Hill Resources has rejected majority shareholder Rio Tinto's bid to buy the 49% stake it doesn't already own in the company for $2.7 billion, saying it did not reflect its full and fair value. So it sounds like Rio Tinto owns 51% of Turquoise Hill and wanted to buy out the other half but they were rejected by shareholders. The decision by the special committee appointed by Turquoise Hill blocks Rio Tinto's efforts to gain greater control of the giant Oyu Tolgoy copper gold mine, 
It's developing in Mongolia. Now, don't you remember last week is something like Oz Minerals that BHP was trying to take over? Like, I think miners are seeing opportunity in this downswing in the markets and commodities, suggesting that the miners themselves may think this is a temporary downswing because they are trying to make deals during it. And it also suggests that the people who they're making deals towards, the one with BHP was rejected last week, and this was rejected as well, suggesting the people who are being attempted to be taken over are also bullish. So this is a setback to Rio's plans to increase its exposure to so-called future-facing commodities such as copper and nickel, which are key for the global green energy transition. Taking a big stake in the Oyutolgoi mine, Rio Tinto's main copper growth project would have helped the mining giant to achieve that goal. The world's second largest miner, which controls and operates Oyutolgoi through its 51% stake in Turquoise Hill, offered in March $34 a share to the miners' minority holders a 32% premium to the closing price the day before the offer was put forward. I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I hear all sorts of crazy predictions of where copper could go this decade, so... We're at 350 copper, 360 copper. Yeah, I, I could see these companies wanting to lock in some major assets. So that's the latest on Oyutolgoi, ongoing Sega. Continuing on, Giga Metals and Mitsubishi to jointly develop Turnagain Nickel Deposit in BC. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, Junior Giga Metals and global trading and investment firm Mitsubishi agreed on Monday to form a joint venture company, Hard Creek Nickel Corporation, to develop the Turnagain Nickel Cobalt Deposit in northern British Columbia. As part of the deal, Mitsubishi will acquire a 15% equity interest in the joint venture firm for $8 million in cash. Giga will receive an 85% equity interest in Hard Creek in exchange for contributing all related assets for the Turnagain project, its core asset. It will also be the project administrator, Giga Metals will work on a pre-feasibility study for the project with completion expected in the first half of 2023. Pretty interesting JV with Mitsubishi in BC. So back to jurisdiction, which again is the focus of this week's podcast. Continuing on, Tosico granted draft permit for Florence Copper Project in Arizona. Also by Cecilia Jamazmi, Tosico Mines has scored a small but key win in the long-dragged permitting process for its Florence Copper Project in Arizona as the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has issued a draft underground injection control license for the asset. Quote, the UIC permit is the final key permit required for the construction and operation of the Florence Copper Commercial Facility, President and CEO Stuart McDonald said in a statement. He continues, our project has gone through extensive scrutiny by both the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality and the EPA over the past eight years, and we are confident that the rigorous work completed by both these regulatory bodies will result in permitting success in the coming months. Now, at the start of the quote, it said he had the final key permit, but then at the end of the next sentence, it says... We are confident that the rigorous work completed by both these regulatory bodies will result in permitting success in the coming months. So maybe there are other permits. A little confusing there. Maybe that's just me. Continuing on, Stanmore Coal pays Mitsui $380 million for full control of Queensland coal mines. Also by Cecilia Jamazmi, Australia's Stanmore Coal has acquired the remaining 20% stake 
in the South Walker Creek and Buttrell coal mines in Queensland from Japanese trading house Mitsui & Co. in a deal valued at $380 million. The move, which seeks to complete the takeover of the metallurgical coal joint venture BHP Mitsui Coal, follows a deal inked in November with BHP to buy the mining giant's majority stake in BMC, which is the BHP Mitsui Coal Company, for up to $1.35 billion. Stanmore, majority owned by Singapore-listed Golden Energy and Resources, said the deal would cement its position as a leading metallurgical coal miner in the Bowen Basin. So a little coal deal. And finally, copper price falls on demand worries in China. And this is from August 15th. So this is yesterday, Mining.com staff writer. The copper price fell on Monday as worries about demand in China surfaced due to weak economic data and a firmer dollar. Copper for delivery in September fell 2% on the COMEX market in New York, touching $3.59 per pound. Quote, Chinese data was disappointing suggesting a bigger hit than expected from COVID-19 restrictions, and quote, a metals trader said, adding that a higher dollar had also triggered fund selling. But there is a positive. Interest rate cuts from the PBOC, also known as the People's Bank of China. China's economy unexpectedly slowed in July with growth in industrial output, fixed asset investment, total social financing, and new yuan loans slowing. Meanwhile, Chinese property developers sharply cut investment in July, while new construction starts suffered their biggest fall in nearly a decade. However, China's central bank unexpectedly cut key interest rates for the second time this year on Monday in an attempt to revive credit demand to support growth. With files from Reuters. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, just a quick look at the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond. For context, it is unchanged at 2.79%. Last week was at 2.79% as well. So calm waters in the bond market, at least on a weekly basis. Turning to our metals, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on August 16th, Already August 16th, gold is trading at $1,776.50 per ounce. That is $19 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $20.15 per ounce. That is $0.46 lower than last week. Platinum is also lower at $929.93 per ounce. That is $9 lower than last week. And palladium is also lower at $2,126.36 per ounce. That is $69 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is 11 cents higher at $3.66 per pound. Aluminum is also a penny higher at $1.12 per pound. Lead is 4 cents higher at 99 cents per pound. Nickel is at $10.53 per pound. That is 47 cents higher than last week. Tin is at $11.34 per pound. That is also 11 cents higher. Cobalt is 90 cents lower at $21.21 per pound, and zinc is 6 cents higher at $1.67 per pound. Zooming out, we see industrial metals catch a bid, so we are definitely seeing a 
consolidation, I mean, you look at aluminum in the last seven weeks, it's basically, it was at a dollar eleven seven weeks ago, and now it's at a dollar twelve. Last week was a dollar eleven. Two weeks ago was a dollar ten, dollar six, dollar nine. So they've really kind of consolidated. Copper a little higher. So our industrial metals have caught a bid. Uh, they are not rocketing higher, but they are drifting a little bit higher, shall we say. Precious metals, not as fortunate. They are all down. So industrial metals, slightly higher. Precious metals, slightly lower. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Canadian Mining Journal's Foreign Investment Panel featuring three partners from Denton, Rachel A. Howie, James Langley, and John Hay. And Canadian Mining Journal Editor-in-Chief Tamer Elbuckel does the introduction, so I'll let him take care of that. A very practical and useful discussion on what you need to consider, particularly if you're a miner and you're going into a foreign country, the kinds of things, the legal matters you should be considering if you plan to build something or invest in something in another country. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. My name is Tamer Elbok. I am the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mining Journal. We are having this meeting to discuss capital-intensive projects in foreign countries and long-term agreements. In the mining industry, we're also uh, discussing investment protection, getting advice from the experts in uh, Dentons. Dentons has like a huge uh, expertise and experience in mining and natural resources that goes beyond the law, of course, and extends to a deep understanding of the industry and how that should translate into legal matters that maximizes capital efficiency and minimizes risk. So I'm going to introduce everybody. I'll start with Rachel. Uh, so Rachel Howie is a partner at Dentons and the co-lead of the Legitation and Dispute Resolution Group in Canada, so a fellow Canadian. She also co-leads the firm's Canadian Alternative Dispute Resolution and Arbitration Group. Her practice focuses on international and domestic arbitration and litigation, primarily in the energy, mining, and natural resources industries. Uh, we also have James Langley. Uh, James Langley is a partner at Dentons in London. James focuses on international uh, arbitration, including both commercial arbitration and investor state arbitration, as well as commercial litigation and alternative dispute resolution. He works within natural resources, energy and infrastructure, retail, telecoms, uh, shipping, and sports sectors. And uh, last but not least, of course, is John Hay. John is a partner at Dentons, and he is the head of the U.S. International Dispute Resolution Group. So John has more than 35 years of experience representing domestic, international clients in complex commercial and investment treaty disputes. John has arbitrated uh, disputes in a wide variety of areas, uh, including construction, energy and mining, uh, joint ventures, financial services, real estate, and investments in foreign countries. I don't know what more you can do, but <laughs> it's certainly an impressive vibe. Okay, so I, I will start our discussion today by asking a general question. What is investment protection? 
Okay, well, let, let me start by giving some background and answering that question. Investment protections are protections and benefits to foreign investors under international investment agreements, usually multilateral or bilateral investment treaties or free trade agreement that contain investment protections. Just by way of background, the first investment treaties date back to the mid-50s, but became much more common in the 1980s. They're intended to attract private investment in developing countries to supplement public aid in those countries. They provide some fundamental protections for investments as an alternative to local law that is either unfamiliar or inadequate to protect the investor. They provide for arbitration under the treaty of, for these claims as an alternative to local courts, which tend to be inadequate or corrupt. Just uh, again, to put it in context, there are probably over 2,300 different investment treaties in force today in the world. You know, just by way of background, what are these investment treaties protect? Well, they, they have, in addition to the procedural protection of an arbitration clause, they also have some substantive protections, such as most favorite nation treaty uh, treatment and uh, national treatment which prevents discrimination in favor of local entities when, when a foreign investor is making an investment. Protection against expropriation is another example of what they protect against. Freedom to transfer funds and capital into and out of the country is also an important aspect uh, of many of these treaties. And you know, last but not least, uh, they protect with respect to fair and equitable treatment so that the investment is treated under international standards in a fair and equitable way. And also they fully protect, uh, they, they provide for full protection and security, which is another way that the investment is protected against possible actions by the government. Now, many of these uh, bits have other provisions, but those are the major ones that give you some kind of indication as to what is being protected. Now, the advantage of these is that, you know, they cover investments by an investor in one country in the territory of another country. The investment is usually very generally defined to include virtually any asset. And basically what happens is the investor of one state is usually defined as a either an individual or a company or in the best case scenario, an indirect owner, which is the area which we'll talk about a little later that, that has the most benefit for various investors investing in these developing countries. So thank you so much, John. It looks like we're good to move to the next part, which is like you almost answered as well, but I'd like to, to, to everybody to weigh in like in more with examples and more details why is investment protection important? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And you're right, it is an area where we can provide a, a lot of examples. As, as John indicated, why it's important uh, is because investment protection protects the investor against the risk of state interference with investments. And this can be a particular concern, as you said at the outset, in, in mining, because mining projects are often long-term 
They can span multiple governments, span multiple elections in any given region. And even in states that are traditionally thought of as, you know, quote, safer investment, a government change as a result of an election or another regulatory shift that could see perhaps a new denial of a license for a rare metals project that has been the subject of previous licenses and a substantial amount of work and investment by the investor up to that point in time. Because of that possibility for regulatory and political risk and change, investment protection can be important across the spectrum. Whether you are investing in a so-called safe zone or a foreign state that's traditionally thought of as more at risk. And where those investment agreements give the right to arbitrate disputes, they ensure that the investor is not necessarily required to take action against the state and local courts where the outcome may be unpredictable or where the outcome might be political or where the courts might not be thought of as independent. And another important aspect is that these protections are additive to what can be obtained through political risk insurance from private providers or certain governments or from the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency. There's no cost to these protections. So unlike private insurance that might have premiums that need to be paid, there's no cost here. And these are additive protections that work alongside contractual remedies. And the protections and benefits are outside of national laws, which mean it's also very difficult, if not impossible, for one state to um, unilaterally change the law that may be at issue. Another important aspect, uh, and to provide another real example, is that these investment protections also provide foreign investors with more expansive protections if they have to pursue a claim for a loss. The amount that they could claim and could be entitled to under an investment arbitration could be far higher um, and different than how that claim would be assessed if it were to proceed in local courts. And there are also abilities to, um, greater abilities to, to leverage uh, alternative routes of funding that dispute through uh, disputes funding and third-party funders. And uh, I'll, I'll stop there and see if my colleagues want to weigh in on anything further that, uh, that might add to this. And, and if not, then we can, can move on to the next question. If I may add um, just a couple of points to that, Rachel. Um, I guess the first thing that, that might just be worth saying, I think it's, it's sort of obvious, but it's interesting is, you know, the ability for a private company to sue a state or a government is it's quite a recent thing. You know, these, as, as John's explained, you know, these treaties emerge and the rights that they, that they have given rise to, you know, in relative terms quite recently. And it's, it's quite, um, you know, before that, it simply wasn't possible for a private company to bring a claim against the state. You, you, you had issues of state immunity, et cetera. So, you know, that is a relatively new thing. And of course, you know, a massive advantage for, for an investor in mining, for example. The other thing that's probably worth saying is, you know, where you do have arbitration, and obviously it depends in what forum and under what rules, almost certainly the means of enforcing your arbitration award is easier than if you had a court judgment. And that's clearly very important because you, you may bring your claim and you may succeed. But very often the problem that you have with judgments is that, you know, court judgments is that they're not much use outside the jurisdiction that you're in. And, and one of the things that we see in international arbitration is, you know, enforcement in multiple jurisdictions where assets are held. And, and that's easier for, for reasons that we can come on to. It's, it tends to be easier with arbitration awards where there are 
conventions that enable enforcement that, that might not be there with with court judgment. And I'll just add one other reason uh, that, you know, it, my experiences has taught me that these investment treaty cases are and, and arbitration claims are much better than local courts is even if you have a local court that is that is fair and has no biases or anything like that, putting, you know, in addition to the issues of collection and things like that, we, we, we mentioned, I just find that international arbitration tribunals under this system, you know, just have more expertise in dealing with these types of issues. You know, local courts don't don't have a expertise in mining, as an example, but arbitration tribunals do. They, you know, there's many mining cases out there as an just as an example, whether it's mining or construction or whatever, you know, you just get a better quality trier of fact and 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 a determinant of the of the case when you when you go through these uh investment protections and you actually have a case before a international tribunal rather than a local court. John's comment there reminded me of something, and I, I know it's something that we've seen a lot. For anyone who's listening and and thinking that, well, this this means that you might have to uh, if you get these protections, you might have to chase a case through to the end to enforcement stages. That's not necessarily the case because in this area, oftentimes the uh, investment agreements are structured where the the party bringing the claim has to give some form of notice, and then there's usually a quote cooling off period before the claim actually proceeds, and that's to allow negotiations. And oftentimes, having that ability to pull this lever and look at pursuing a claim directly against the state can be sufficient to really get good negotiations going and oftentimes come up with a resolution. So it's there's another benefit too in having that option. Uh, you might not have to chase it all the way through, but it might be enough to bring the parties to the table to really get a, a commercially fair deal. That's really a good point, uh, Rachel, because I was going to ask, give us more detail on how do states or governments commit to investment agreement? What makes them get into those kinds of agreements? In most cases, you make those agreements in countries where the regimes are not really democratic. They are not for protection, of course, because you need to protect your investment. So how do those governments get into those agreements? Like how committed they are, you know, to go into to international arbitration after in case of disputes in your experience? Well, it's it is based on it's not an in, an agreement between the individual company and, and the state, although that sometimes happens and those are sometimes actually litigated in in investment treaty arbitrations for in a variety of ways. But instead, it's a situation where one country has a treaty with another country and under that treaty, they agree that the investors from one of the countries into the other will have certain rights. I'll give you an example, uh, you know, just, you know, Canada and Colombia, as an example, have, have an, an investment treaty. And under that, the, that treaty, it, it basically says that Canadians, you know, it could, it could be a Canadian mining company, as an example, if they invest in Colombia, and, and the Colombian government does something that adversely impacts that investment, then that investor under the treaty has a right to bring an arbitration against Colombia. So Colombia is bound to arbitrate. It basically is consenting to arbitration with which, whichever investor who has a right under the treaty brings an arbitration. So they have no choice at that point in time. 
and they go forward with it and it's enforceable and countries stand by their treaties. So in, in that particular case, it's forcing the government without a separate contract, but, but under the treaty to actually go ahead with the arbitration. Can I pick up a point on that, which is that we call these bilateral investment treaties, but when you actually look at the document itself, they won't ever be called bilateral investment treaties or hardly ever. They're usually called investment protection and promotion agreements. And the investment promotion part of that, I think, is is quite important because, you know, why do states enter into these treaties? Well, one reason they do it is to incentivize investment from the other state. And so, you know, yes, they are um, exposing themselves potentially to claims from investors, but they are also doing that in exchange for investment in the first place. And of course, you know, there will be many, many investments and, and you know, relatively few of those will end up in a, in a treaty claim. And of course, they're doing it so that their investors in the other state will have the equivalent protection. So, you know, there, there are there are good reasons for this. I mean, it. It is, of course, the case that as between two states, it, or it may be the case that as between two states, it is much more likely that the investors of one will bring claims against the other. And of course, you know, that's something that will be factored into the negotiations between the states as to what protections one is prepared to offer to the other. Yeah. And the system does change. There are changes uh, from time to time. There have been instances where where countries uh, will announce the revocation of certain uh, agreements. And we saw this recently here with the change from NAFTA to the USMCA or the CUSMA. And that also brought with it changes to the investment protection system under those agreements. So it, it is something where one might want to revisit the issue from time to time for any particular investment and, and get that global perspective because uh, the system can change uh, and has been changing recently. And I'm glad you brought up NAFTA because we have seen that it doesn't only happen in uh, developing countries, but uh, for example, in the US with a change of government or having a, a different kind of government or a different kind of president, uh, we have seen that the new president was, uh, had uh, a totally uh, different perspective for the agreement or for NAFTA that made the negotiations much more difficult. That also resulted in, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it might have resulted also in halting a lot of investments between the countries and like among the countries involved in NAFTA as it would have been the case in any other developing country. So let's go now to the mining industry. For miners involved in rare metals, why is this particularly relevant, especially at this time? New metals and rare earth metals are, are seen in exponential demand. And demand in some areas is expected to quadruple or more even by 2030 you know, as a result of EV and other green technologies. But these are still capital intensive endeavors. They still require substantial investment at the outset. Uh, they have high production costs. They are long term. The investor might not see a profit for months or years after starting a new operation. And these also are at that intersection of competing regulatory and political issues for governments. Things like water use, water use plans, taxation, royalties, land use plans, mining permits, emissions targets, environmental areas of, of protection and, and government interest in strategic and critical domestic supply. And all of that could create and, and can create a, a perfect storm where projects in, in jurisdictions that might be politically unstable or even subject to just regular change 
through elections and change in government perspective could be subject to impacts in a way that are detrimental to the miner, uh, detrimental to the investment. They could result in the cessation entirely of licenses for a project or of um, you know, increasingly steep royalty or taxation payments uh, in a way that if there are investment protections in place, they, they could be offside those protections and provide the miner with that other assurance and opportunity to um, protect its business, protect its operations. And, you know, because miners looking at the business now need to make decisions on projects to meet demand in 2030 and beyond, it's difficult to predict where that political and regulatory perspective might be at that point in time. So when they make the investments, doing that uh, investment agreement analysis and seeing what protections are in place or could be in place can help to protect them into the future. So, I, I, I mean, I think one of the things we are undoubtedly going to see is is huge investment in in those areas, and of course we're seeing it already. And I think what you what you generally find, and you see this in the mining sector and in the past in the oil and gas sector, is that you know the terms upon which you might be granted a license or a concession may be somewhat favourable in order to attract investment, but but particularly if those become very successful concessions, very successful for projects you typically see governments seeking to often you know under political pressure seeking to take a greater share of those profits going forward whether it's in the form of of you know royalties or taxes or, or whatever it might be and so you know if this is going to be as critical to the global economy as we think it's going to be you know with with all of the things that Rachel said and lithium and cobalt and nickel etc and these these projects do indeed become as successful as we think they're going to be. You can expect all sorts of ways in which governments will seek to take a greater share of that, and and you know that's why I think investors need to be really careful to make sure that if that happens, and if it happens, of course it, that may happen in a legitimate way, but if it happens in a way that breaches the relevant treaty, that they that they have protection. And I think it's important to say in that regard that what you shouldn't do as an investor is wait until that project goes wrong and something happens that affects the value of your investment and then see to what extent you have treaty protection you need to make sure you've got that at the outset because you know what you can't do uh, generally is restructure your investment in a way that takes advantage of um, a, a particular treaty which you didn't previously have the benefit of after a dispute has arisen or after things have gone wrong just adding to that, what, what we're really talking about here is a situation where the client, the, the mining company, is, is trying to deal with a potentially unknown uh, in, in the future. Uh, how do you deal with the fact that you don't know if the government's going to change and what action it's going to take? Because in, in, as Rachel pointed out, in the mining industry, there, there, are, there are plenty of issues that can come up that could motivate a government to change its policy. And so what do you do to protect yourself in that regard? And, and as James mentioned, you can't wait, you can't make the investment. Uh, well, obviously, in some cases, you make the investment and then you see what rights you have if there's a problem on, you know, in that particular case. What we're suggesting, what we tell our clients is, and this is one of the things that Denton's advises clients on, is before you actually make the investment, you take a serious analysis as to 
you know, how best to protect that investment and because of these future unknowns. And the way to do that is to understand, you know, if you're investing in a particular country, let's, let's say you're, again, using my example, you're, you're investing in Colombia and, you know, you're, you're a mining company that located in a country that doesn't necessarily have a treaty, an investment treaty with Colombia or the investment treaty you have with Colombia is not one that provides a great deal of protection, then you can, at the early stages of the project, decide to structure the project in such a way that, okay, well, maybe we'll structure the project by having the actual investor into the country be from the Netherlands, That, as another example, which may have a better investment treaty. So those are the types of decisions that the client needs to make before the investment is made in order to provide maximum protection for these unknowns in the future. Something that just came to mind, are we seeing a rise in nationalism uh, in the mining industry from different countries that would affect investment? Well, I, I think generally, yes. It, it depends on when you talk about nationalism, it's, I mean, it has many forms to the extent that, you know, obviously in the last 10 years, governments have been more and more protective of their inhabitants and their rights, you know, with respect to properties that are being mined. They're, they're more protective of environment. You know, in a sense, that's a nationalism type of a, uh, element that is driving what the governments are doing. And because of that, that's something that the mining companies need to take into account. You know, is that going to continue and is it going to intensify? And if it does, are they are they protected? Okay, and that brings me to the next question. How does investment protection interact with the risk around increased ESG scrutiny? If I can start on this one, obviously ESG means different things in different places and has a more advanced regulatory regime in, in, in different parts of, of the world. And in a sense, that's part of the problem here. I mean, one thing we are seeing in treaties is particular provisions around ESG being introduced. It's, you know, this is quite a new thing. But, you know, we are seeing, for example, more scope for states to to regulate, to pass laws that may serve the protection of the environment, allow them to take to take measures to combat climate change and, and deal with other human rights related issues, for example, in a way that some people would say states already had, you know, in the end, what you can do as the state in, in, in dealing with those kind of public interest issues rather depends as to the implementation and um, whether the laws that you pass are discriminatory, uh, whether they contravene promises that, you, that you've made. I mean, I think ESG in the context of mining has a number of different strands. I mean, I, I think in terms of the E, you know, one of the obvious things would be the environmental impacts of, of the mining itself. The S, typically you'd be looking at, at human rights related issues and the impact on, on local communities and the G typically, I think, has, has manifested itself in issues around corruption. But also increasingly what we're seeing is for integrated companies operating projects out of subsidiaries or group companies, a level of control over the activities of those um, subsidiaries, which may uh, and has given rise to liability at the parent level. Um, and, and that's you know particularly an issue where the parent is a listed company in a jurisdiction where it's easier to bring those claims. 
what does all of that mean in terms of investment protection? Well, as I said, you know, if what you're talking about is an action by the state to combat, you know, perceived ills that, that, that have given rise to, then then the question is, well, what measures have they taken and do those breach the, the treaty? And I suppose, you know, in recent years, one, one would look at the uh, example of Spain, for example, having having offered um, favourable tariffs for investments in the renewable sector and then remove those or significantly uh, remove the benefits and, and a whole wave of, of claims against Spain as a result. But I think it can work the other way as well. Something that we have seen, which is a relatively new phenomenon, is the possibility, if the treaty wording allows for it, of the state to bring a claim against the investor. You know, if, if there have been environmental issues, for example, or, or conceivably in all sorts of other circumstances, it's possible that the that this you know the end of the day most of these investment agreements give rise to the investor, not the state. But it, in some, the wording is broad enough to allow the state to bring a counterclaim against the investor. And of course, that may be very significant. You you may find yourself in a situation where you've been successful in your primary claim against the state, but there's a counterclaim that neutralizes some of the value of that. So it's it's definitely a growing area, and and I think you know it's going to become more prominent as we see new treaties coming in and, and these kind of issues really coming to the fore. That's great. Anything to add, John and Rachel? Maybe just on the new treaty side, as, as James mentioned, there are uh, constantly treaties in development. States are constantly um, revisiting and updating what their, quote, standard treaty wording might be and what is uh, potentially a trend going into the future uh, is wording in those treaties that provides a greater leeway to the state to make change for its ESG goals. And as those changes come into fruition or as states start to um, uh, work on language that affect in treaties, it, it will you know, cause a need to go back to the drawing board, perhaps in some instances, and, and re-examine the investment structuring that was put in place for a, a company or an operation to make sure that it is still in line with the protections that are actually available going forward. So it, it is an interesting uh, area of change on that front as well going into the future. At the end of this uh, discussion, I really would like to thank our discussion group here, uh, Rachel Harvey, James Langley, and John Hay. Thank you so much. So thank you once again to Tamer Elbokel for sharing that content from the Canadian Mining Journal, our sister publication. We have some events coming up. On September 8th, we have a Minor Legends Speaker Series, and that features Robert A. Quartermain, former chairman and founder of Predium Resources, as well as Andre St. Germain, CFO of Integra Resource. Go to events.northernminer.com. And there is also the Q3 Global Mining Symposium also coming up at the end of September on September 28th and 29th. Register your interest today, events.northernminer.com. And with that, if you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.